So Christian, I've got some good news for you. Your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. If you're trusting in Christ alone, your judgment day happened over 2,000 years ago. It's not in your future. You were judged at the cross. You died when Jesus died. You were judged when he was judged. Now, of course, we will all stand before God on that final judgment day, but we will show up already judged, already forgiven, already imputed with the righteousness of Christ. All we will hear on that day is, well done. Your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. And that's what Paul will let the Colossians know. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Paul continues with all of this union with Christ language that he's been using, that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. Phrases like, in him and with him. He just said in the previous verses to what we're looking at today that we are called to walk in him, that we are built up in him. He just then said, in him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily, and we have been filled in him. So it's all union with Christ stuff. But now Paul goes on to say that we have been circumcised in him. So Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So circumcision, I'm going to assume you all know what that is, is the cutting off of a piece of flesh. But why does Paul bring it up? I think it's likely that the false teachers who were trying to creep their way into the Colossian church, that they were peddling some form of works-based righteousness that was closely connected to the Mosaic law. They were probably suggesting that these Gentile believers in Colossae should be circumcised. Of course, we know that the sign of the covenant in the Old uh, Testament was circumcision. Every male eight days old would be circumcised, as well as any male Gentile outsiders who came to faith in Yahweh and wanted to be a part of the family of God. They had to be circumcised. So my guess is that these false teachers were creeping into the church at Colossae, trying to get the Colossians to go back under certain aspects of the Old Covenant in the Mosaic Law. We'll see more of this uh, next week as we look at the next section. So Paul brings up circumcision to let the Colossians know that they don't need to be circumcised because they have already been circumcised in Christ. Paul is using circumcision here as a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. And so those phrases in verse 11... Circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, those are vivid and graphic ways of referring to the death of Jesus on the cross. Instead of cutting off a small piece of human flesh and physical circumcision, in Christ we have had our entire body of flesh removed. Not with human hands, but by the Spirit of God. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been stripped away in Christ through his circumcision, through him being cut off 
on the cross. In other words, when Christ died, he was circumcised. When he was cut off on the cross, we were circumcised with him. We were cut off with him. Again, this is union with Christ language. We were united with him at the cross, condemned with him, crucified with him. His death becomes our death. But we're not just united with him in his death, we're also united with him in his resurrection. As Paul says, look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when Jesus was buried, we were buried with him. When he was in the grave for three days, we were in the grave with him. That's how real, that's how close, that's how connected we are with him. That's what union with Christ means. We are united to him in all aspects of what he has done for us. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. Paul refers to this burial as baptism. There are several ways to interpret what Paul means. I think Paul uses baptism here not to refer to the way we normally think of baptism, disciples being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as Jesus commissions us in Matthew 28. I don't think Paul's talking about that. I think Paul uses baptism here to refer to what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. It's his death and resurrection. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 10? And James and John, let me read it to you. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Let's pause there. Don't we all do that? (laughs) I want you to do what I want you to do for me. And do it now, please. So we're not any different than they are. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus is speaking of his suffering when he mentions baptism in this conversation with James and John. He was baptized into the grave, into death, and then he was raised to life. So too, we have been baptized with him into death, into the grave, and we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Let me read it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Paul goes on to mention baptism into Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this is, this is corporate union with Christ's language. We have been baptized with him 
in his death. We've been raised with him in resurrection. David Murray highlights this union when he says this. Our eyes see one death on the cross. Our faith sees multiple deaths on the cross. Our eyes see Christ in a lifeless grave, but our faith sees Christ in a life-giving grave. Our eyes see one empty tomb, but our faith sees our empty tomb. And so through faith, by the powerful working of God, we died with Jesus and we were raised with Jesus when he was raised on that first Easter. Yes, we still await a physical resurrection someday when Jesus returns, but we were raised with him by the Spirit on that first Easter morning. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we were regenerated and made alive. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul is speaking about regeneration. That's a a big theological word that you should know. And the reason you should know it is because it's happened to you, Christian. You have been regenerated. It's how you became a Christian. Regeneration. What is regeneration? It is being made alive by the Spirit of God when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you alive spiritually so that you can repent, you can turn and trust in Jesus. So when someone shares the gospel, when you share the gospel with an unbeliever, they will not be saved, no matter how many times they hear the gospel, unless they are regenerated, unless they are made alive by the Spirit. Now, of course, they're walking around and they're alive, but spiritually, they're dead. And they need the Spirit to make them alive. Unbelievers are dead in their sins, and unless the Holy Spirit makes them alive spiritually, so that they can repent and believe. If the Spirit doesn't do that, then they never will. Regeneration is the Holy Spirit making you alive so that you can come to Jesus. So regeneration precedes faith and repentance. Here's how we say it in our statement of faith here at Grace. Uh, Section G, appropriately titled Regeneration. We believe that those who by God's free grace are regenerated by the Holy Spirit become new creatures and thus are enabled to repent and forsake sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior and are delivered from condemnation and receive eternal life. Those who are thus regenerated will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives And that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. But what does the phrase, the uncircumcision of our flesh, mean? It means that when we were still dead in our sins, we were still connected to Adam. We were uncircumcised, still connected to Adam. We are born into this world connected to Adam. We are sinners because of his sin. And then we sin and prove that we are sinners. We are a part of him. We are a part of Adam. And 
we were not cut off, we were not circumcised from Adam until the Holy Spirit made us alive, until we experienced regeneration. And so we were connected to Adam, dead in sin, uncircumcised in our flesh, And the Holy Spirit, when we heard the gospel, made us alive, raised us up from the dead, and circumcised us, meaning he cut us off from Adam. And then he connected us to Jesus. Every human being born in this world is connected to Adam. They need to be circumcised and cut off from Adam and then connected to Christ. That's what union with Christ is. You are in union with Adam. You are circumcised, cut off from him, and then immediately connected to Christ. So there was a a spiritual amputation that took place. The Spirit circumcised us from Adam, cut us off, amputated us from Adam, and then he joined us, united us, connected us to Christ. And when we are connected to Jesus by faith, we hear the good news that comes at the end of verse 13. Look at verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how did God forgive us? It's by canceling our sin. This is the only kind of canceling that I'm interested in. God canceling my sin. Now, our world tries to cancel people these days as if they can, really, right? I mean, go ahead and cancel me. I don't care, okay? doesn't faze me. I'll keep talking about Jesus as the only way to heaven. I'll keep talking about all the issues today that go against God's word. You can cancel me. It doesn't bother me. You know why it doesn't bother me? Because God has canceled my sin. My horrendous sin that has offended a holy God and the record of debt that stood against me has been canceled at the cross. Some of the things that people say and do to get canceled these days are nothing compared to what I and compared to what we have done to a holy God. People say and do things and they're like, cancel them. It's like, you have no idea what you've done against the holy God. He should cancel you. God has every right to cancel us. And God should cancel us. We deserve it. He should kick us all out. He should refuse us service. He should block us, shun us. But he doesn't. Instead, he cancels the record of debt that stood against us. What is the record of debt? It's God's law exposing our sin. God's law requires that we be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says that in Matthew 5, where is he? The Sermon on the Mount. What is he doing? He's bringing the law down again. Where did Moses receive the law? At Mount Sinai. Jesus is just doing what Moses did and said, here's the law. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He doesn't expect you to do it because he knows if you try to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you can't. The point is to be exposed and say, I can't be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And then Jesus says, exactly. I will give you my righteousness and then you'll be perfect. God's law exposes us as sinners. It condemns us. It's written with a sharpie marker. The record of debt is permanent until Jesus shows up. Understand, the sharpie markers are no match for Jesus. The record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, condemning us, telling us to be perfect, 
written with a Sharpie marker, a permanent marker, is no match for Jesus because his blood has washed away the Sharpie permanent marker stain of our sin. John Piper explains it this way. It's as if Jesus reached up to the Father and asked if he could hold the entire record of all our trespasses in his hand. Then he held it in his hand as the spike was driven through and it pierced the record of debts as it pierced his hand. By means of this nailing, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Literally, he erased it. He wiped the ink off paper. It's as if the blood of Jesus, soaking the record of debts in his pierced hand, caused all the ink to dissolve and flow away. No more record of debt. So every sin that we have ever done, written down on a piece of paper, if you will, has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. His blood has washed away the Sharpie permanent marker stain of our sin. We are now justified, forgiven, cleansed, made righteous in God's eyes because Jesus was nailed to the cross. John Duncan, who was a 19th century Scottish theologian, said, Justification, when we apprehend it deeply enough, is the virtual execution of our sins. Our sins have been executed on the cross. They are no longer able to condemn us. We are justified. We've been declared righteous. There is no condemnation for us because we've been cut off from Adam and we've now been joined to Christ. So our sin can no longer condemn us. But Satan and company can no longer condemn us either. Because the demo- as Paul says here, the demonic rulers and authorities have been disarmed, stripped, and publicly exposed. In verse 15, Paul has in mind the imagery of a triumphant king returning from the battlefield, having conquered his enemies. They would strip the prisoners of war, march them through the city as the people celebrated the victory of their king. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus disarmed, literally stripped Satan and his minions and openly shamed them, leading them in chains through the city as God's people celebrated the victory of our king. In fact, Jesus was stripped of his clothes and hung naked on the cross, but through that stripping, he stripped the devil of all his power. And yes, though he is defeated and stripped bare and shamed and disarmed, the devil will still try to accuse and condemn you. I'm sure he tried to do that this morning as you were getting ready for church. Martin Luther said, The devil will attack you vigorously and will try to swamp you with piles, floods, and whole oceans of sins in order to frighten you and draw you away from Christ and plunge you into despair then you must be able to say with confident assurance, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for righteousness and for saints, but for unrighteousness and for sinners. If I were righteous and without sin, I would have no need of Christ as my propitiator. Satan, you cantankerous saint, why do you try to make me feel holy and look for righteousness in myself when in fact there is nothing in me but sins and real and serious sins at that? When Satan tempts us to despair, upward we look and we see Jesus there who made an end of our sin, right? When Satan reminds us of our sin, we should say something like this. 
You know, when, you're, when he's just harassing, I can't believe you did that. You acted this way. You said that. You just read your Bible and prayed. And, like, you were so full of the Spirit. And you turned around and did that? Like, two minutes later? What kind of Christian are you? Whenever he hits you with all of those assaults, say something like this. You're correct. But you missed a few. I also did this and this and this and this. And Jesus paid for them all. I am forgiven, so take that, loser. And then you tell the devil, your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. And then you tell Satan, you were disarmed at the cross 2,000 years ago. You were stripped and paraded shamefully through the streets as a loser. And one day, you will have an eternal judgment day where you will be condemned forever to hell. And I will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So take that, loser. That's what you say to him. Now think of what our union with Jesus will be like on that day. I think, I think Jesus will make Satan sit there as we are reunited with Jesus and as he declares us righteous and says, well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. I think he's going to make him sit there and watch it all. This is what I think it will look like when Jesus returns, when we see him. There's the famous photograph from the late 60s, 70s of a dad coming home from Vietnam and being greeted by his family, reunited with them. Isn't that great? That's how I picture us meeting Jesus. And you better watch out because I'm going to knock everyone down to get there, okay? I, I will be pushing people out of the way. If you fall down, you've been warned, okay? Because I cannot wait to see Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, do you long to see Jesus? Are you looking forward to seeing him? Martin Luther called it the most happy last day. Do you view it as the most happy last day? How do you view the last day? Does it scare you? Are you fearful? Full of dread? I don't know about you, but I can't wait. It will be the most happy last day. And I know what kind of a sinner I am, and I can't wait to see Jesus. Can you believe that? How is that possible? How can someone who knows the depth of their sin and so full of shame and condemnation, knowing the depths of my depravity, how can someone like that long to see the perfect Savior? The gospel is the answer. I don't know about you, but I know how much of a sinner I am, and yet I can't wait to see Jesus. Now, we know from God's word that judgment awaits every single human being born into this world when they die, believers and unbelievers. But there's a difference between what happens at judgment for the unbeliever and the believer. For the unbeliever, the final judgment is one of terror and being exposed. Every unbeliever who does not trust in Jesus will stand before God and be exposed as sinners, exposed as rebels who broke God's law. It will be a time of fear and sadness for them because Jesus has actually kept track of all their sins with a Sharpie marker. But please understand this. The final judgment is not primarily <clears throat> about striking fear in the unbeliever. I know we sometimes <clears throat> kind of get that idea. The final judgment is not primarily about striking fear in the unbeliever. Rather, it's primarily the occasion where God publicly and definitively demonstrates his love for his elect people. It's primarily about his people being vindicated and God being glorified because of what Jesus has done. 
Judgment Day is actually what we are waiting for because we want to see Jesus. But the final judgment will strike fear and terror in every unbeliever as they stand before their judge, Jesus. And if you've not turned from your sins, if you've not turned to Jesus, trusting in him as the only way to be made right with God, do it now. Because at the final judgment, unbelievers will finally be convinced of their guilt. They will be tried according to God's standard of righteousness, which is the law. And Jesus will pull out a book with every sin recorded with a Sharpie marker. And unbelievers will remember their sins when their hearts are exposed. And their sins, which are brought up at judgment, will prove publicly that God's sentence of judgment on them is indeed righteous and just. They will be shown how they have offended God by breaking his law and trampling his glory under their feet. So for the unbeliever, their sins will be remembered and brought up at the last judgment. A movie of their life, if you will, will be played. And they will see publicly and they will be convinced of their guilt. But what about believers? What will it look like for us when Jesus returns? Will it be awkward? Will it be a time of fear and trembling? What will it be like? It will be like that picture of that family reuniting. It will be joy. Why? Because Jesus can't remember our sins. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. Now, of course, Jesus is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows your sins. He can tell you exactly how many times you sinned and in how many different ways on any given day of your life. But if you are in union with Christ, cut off from Adam, now connected to Jesus, then God dealt with your sins at the cross. Jesus offered himself up once for all for your sins. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, Christian, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. Let me say that again because I'm not sure you believe it because nobody got up and started dancing. Let me say it again. God dealt with your sins at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian, and that ought to make you relax and maybe even dance a little. Christian, when you believed and you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. Justification is God's final judgment on your sin because you're connected to Christ and what he did at Calvary. When God declares you righteous, that's his final judgment on your sin. That's it. And that happens because you were crucified with Christ, because you're in union with him, circumcised in him, cut off from Adam. And that means that we are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Let that sink in for a minute. We are as righteous before God right now as his son Jesus is. Don't believe me? Well, what does John say in 1 John 4, 17? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. As Jesus is right now before his Father, we are right now righteous. Did you hear what John said? Confidence on the day of judgment. Really? 
confidence on the day of judgment? Confidence standing before God Almighty? You mean we don't have to cower in fear? We don't have to fall on our knees and kind of ease our way up? You mean we can just kind of walk in there like, that's my dad and I'm his kid, right? Confidence on the day of judgment? Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Because we were circumcised in him at the cross. Because we were buried with him in baptism. Because we have been raised with him. Because we have been made alive with him. Because he has forgiven all our trespasses. Because he canceled the record of death that stood against us. Because he nailed the condemnation of the law to the cross. Because he triumphed over his enemies at the cross. That's why we can be confident. Because we are in union with him. And that's why Jesus isn't bringing up our sins at the final judgment. Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Jesus is not bringing up your sins when he sees you. Right? Jesus is not bringing up your sins when he sees you. Gospel means what? Good news. If your sins are being brought up by Jesus on the last day, then that's not good news, is it? God will judge all men and their hearts will be laid bare, but for the Christian, it will be a day of good news, a day of vindication. The sins of the ungodly will be remembered afresh, but not ours. So you don't have to fear that Jesus is going to play a movie of your life for all to see. Thank God he's not, right? What a terrible way to start eternity, right? Here's a movie of your life. Pass the popcorn. You're forgiven. Enter into the joy of the Lord. After watching that, I'm going to go hide out for 10,000 years so nobody sees my face. What a terrible way to start eternity. That would be awful. Who wants a movie of their entire life to be shown for everyone to see? Who wants your words, your thoughts, your actions, your motives exposed Not me. It would be kind of hard to enter into the joy of the Lord after watching a movie of our life being played for others to see. What an awful way to start eternity. That's not what it will be like. Instead, we will see a movie of Jesus' perfect life. That's how we will begin eternity. It will be a day of vindication, as Ralph Davis says. On the last day, believers walk up to the throne of judgment with the verdict in hand, acquitted for Jesus' sake. On the last day, Christian, you will walk up to the throne of judgment with the verdict already in your hand. On that slip of paper, it will say, acquitted for Jesus' sake. Why? Because your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. You think about that this week and then just be in awe of your Savior. You walk up to the communion table today with that verdict in your hand, acquitted for Jesus' sake, forgiven, blameless, righteous. I want you to picture that today as you come up as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want you to picture as you walk up here today, think, I have a piece of paper in my hand that says acquitted for Jesus' sake. I can come up to this table today because I've been forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us through your magnificent cross, through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Thank you for cutting us off from Adam 
uniting us to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for regenerating us. In grace, you did that, Lord. We didn't choose you. You made us alive so that we could repent and trust in you. And so we thank you for that. We approach this table today, Jesus, knowing that we're sinners. We know our sin. We're reminded of it often. And we confess that to you. And we repent. We just collapse on you and say, have mercy. Forgive us. Our sins are so many. Forgive us, Lord. We want to approach this table today with confidence because of your finished work for us fully expecting and anticipating by faith that the Holy Spirit is going to strengthen us by his grace as we eat and drink and remember what you have done. You will empower us for the journey ahead until we see you face to face. May you be glorified. May you be magnified. May you be honored. We are in awe of you today, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. We just say thank you.